every company is different. You know, for Microsoft, you know, a, a deal with some risk and teeth in it might be five, 10, 15, 20 million dollars. Um, you know, for other companies, it might be fifty thousand dollars or seventy-five thousand. But we're not talking about a fifteen hundred dollar thing. So when you're going in and asking somebody to really risk capital by signing a contract with you or investing in you, the highly admired capability and skill set is to be able to go broad strategically vague as you may say right and talk about what is happening in the world that you're in and then being able to go deep into context and really talk about welcome to innovation and leadership where i interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers elite special operations soldiers startup ceos who sold their companies for billions of dollars pro athletes hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show we've got Oren Claff. Oren, thanks for making time. Hey, I appreciate it. So for anybody who doesn't know your books that I really love, uh, Pitch Anything and Never Split the Difference and they, they don't know about your career in capital raising, can you give people kind of the, the quick overview? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know me or hasn't read Pitch Anything. <laughs> Nobody. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, Pitch Anything has sold a million copies, so if there's 350 million people in America, but no, but uh, uh, it's good. You know, it's funny. I'll walk into an investment bank, and you know, I'm a, I'm a functioning private equity and investment banking. You know, it's not just an author. It's a world I live in, and uh, I was doing a deal not long ago. And I walk into an investment bank. I mean, this is a sub $10 million offering. Uh, that should happen pretty quickly. And I walk in the room, and there's 28 guys in the room, right? For for a $10 million deal. Just, you know, if you don't do this every day, I mean, 28 guys would be like the public offering of Yahoo. I mean, you, so so I, I say to the other guys there to do the deal with me, well, really, this seems like a pretty big team. They say, oh, no, 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 they're just here. They're just here to get um, their copies of Pitch Anything autographed. And all, <laughs> That's so, a riot. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, Pitch Anything, if you haven't read it, it's the basic blueprint and instruction manual for how Wall Street and Silicon Valley today do deals. So if somehow that passed you by, get a copy of it, and you'll catch up to the rest of everybody who does this stuff. I mean, maybe that's the background I can give you. Love it. Um, maybe if we could cover uh, one of my favorite concepts from it, and then let's move on to flip the script, if that's okay. Um, can you talk about, well, two of them. I want to talk about not being needy first. And then second, I want to talk about this, um, you know, the steps of human decision-making and the thalamus and the neocortex and the emotional judge with the limbic system kind of a thing. Yeah. I think those are, those are, you know, neediness is a good subject. The way, you know, if you're not, if you're not familiar with neediness, uh, then you're probably acting needy um, regularly or, You've had a very good role model and you're very busy and you don't notice neediness at all. But neediness kills deals. It's a big subject. Think, you know, where is it grounded to? If you think back uh, how civilization operated 50,000 years ago, 70,000 years ago, as the man just started moving into larger tribes and starting to deal and have commerce with each other. If somebody came up to you and they needed anything, they from you, right? And they they exhibited any desire or wanting for the things you had. There wasn't money, right? But you, I mean, in those days, all you had was a dog, maybe a little bit of fire, a woman, and enough food for a day or two. I mean, you just did some firewood and some furs, right? You just didn't have stuff. So somebody needed something from you. It was an incredibly dangerous situation and an exhibited 
and 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 um, it caused you to feel fear because on a hair trigger, if somebody needed something from you and you didn't agree to give it to them, they were likely to aggressively or physically or violently take it from you. And that's where this this sense of being afraid of people who are needy came from. Now you roll that forward into today's world, right? And we should intuitively know that if you go to a client, you go to a customer, you go to an investment bank, you go to a bank at all, and you go, I really need this deal. I really need this money. It causes people to back away. It's a signal that you don't have much resources. You don't have a lot of options. And very likely, uh, you are going to take risky um, or violent behaviors in order to get what you want. Now, obviously, you're looking for a bank loan. You're not going to exhibit violent behaviors. But um, you will, you know, if you need it, right, and you're low on resources, you may do some things that are unethical, unscrupulous, or, or really, um, that's not who we want to work with is people who can't, who don't have their own resources. So neediness kills sales, it kills deals, kills relationships, basically anything at the start of a social interaction or relationship, neediness cause, causes dysfunction in it. So we have developed um, and and so we're all subliminally aware of it in some way. And people would say, yeah, yeah, I understand. And you know, I can give you a good example um, of of when I really discovered neediness and its the impact of it. But um, you know, the the problem is that we we know this, right? And we know not to act needy. But the experience of you coming to sell me and knowing that you shouldn't act needy, but needing the deal, and me seeing this go through your mind of you trying to act not needy, but you really being needy and it being fully transparent to me, it makes me afraid of you and not trust you. Neediness kills deals and it erodes trust if you don't know how to manage it and control it and the importance of it. So that's those are my thoughts on on neediness. And I, you know, I can give you an example of where this all came from in my mind and how I learned this, but I'm sure Jess, you know, you've been through this many times yourself. Yeah, you know, um, I think about so we talked about this for a second. You know, after I left after I left mergers and acquisitions at Citigroup, I ended up starting my own private equity fund, and we raised we raised a bunch of cash, bunch bunch of cash. We're we're buying smaller deals, um, and um, I think like for me, I kind of came to this a little bit from the sense of like I was just so annoyed to go meet with all these guys my dad's age because I was like a twenty eight year old CEO, right? Meet with all these guys my dad's age, and when I was asking for the full amount that we needed, they just treated me like I was like the bellhop or something. You know, like they yeah. just talked down to me. I actually had a guy once, we go show up for the meeting and the guy asked if my dad was coming, you know? I said, well, no, I'm actually the CEO, right? Um, and Hey, Jess, hey, Jess, did, ma- did they make that shirt in a man's size? <laughs> yeah, right? Seriously. So, so then uh, for me, like, I feel like I kind of backed into it a little bit backwards of like, I was just so annoyed that, when I would go ask somebody for all the money, uh, it was like I was begging, right? But when I go try to raise a big chunk of cash and I'm only looking for X amount from any one individual, like it, it let me actually get into that more of that headspace of like, hey man, this will go faster if you get in, but like, I don't need you. Like, I'm just gonna find somebody else to take that spot. I, I really wish you would take it because this will go faster for me, but like, you're not like making or breaking my life, right? So- That helped me there. But what I want to talk to you about is um, what about I would love to hear any strategy or nuances for you of when you have an accelerated time frame, when it really is potentially do or die and you don't have the time to go ask a thousand other people. I'm thinking about, you know, real estate deals you've talked about in your books or other things. Can you can you give any maybe deeper insight into 
what that process looks like for you when yeah, well, I can t- yeah, I can t- tell you a quick story. Okay. Uh, and, and so in, in one of my first years of deal making, I had a partner and we were closing a large real estate transaction. I think it was about $40 million. And I was raising the equity. He had raised the debt and we had syndicated it, right? So we had maybe 15 people coming in to the equity piece. You know, So the $6 million that I was raising to close the deal, they had one more guy to close. And then the deal would be closed. We'd make our fee, a couple million bucks. You know, I was going to make whatever the number is, six hundred, $800,000 that I really needed. You know, so so again, this is what triggered the story. You know, I'm sort of hovering around zero dollars, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and doing this correctly means I can go from zero to six hundred thousand dollars. And I and I, by the way, I've had multiple experiences in this career, like having ten dollars in my uh, bank account and then having <laughs> six million, six point one million go into my checking account, right? So so I got it, it's weird. You can get pretty comfortable, you know, going down to like ten dollars, right? So normally, if you have a job. Uh, you know, on the run, you go down to ten dollars. You're 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 pretty nervous. But if you're working on a big deal, uh, you get sort of for some strange reason you get comfortable with these very low uh, bank balances because you know the the potential of a million dollars coming in is so high. So anyway, um, we have this deal and we're trying to close it. I have all the investors in except for one guy, and he won't sign the bad boy carve out. Now he wants to do the deal. He's got the money cleared. I have a good relationship with him. I've been working with him for six weeks, and this document that he won't sign is 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 pretty minimal. It's like compared to everything else, it's like uh, you know if you're buying a car, it's you know a green um, to get insurance. Right? I mean, it's it's less than that. It's just a super easy document to get uh, to sign. So so I call my partner and I say, Russ, you know. Um, this guy won't sign the bad boy carve out. Oh, the bad boy carve out just means you won't be a bad actor. You won't try and steal from the deal. Like everybody signs it. There's no reason not to sign it. So, but he won't sign it for me. So I call up Russ, my partner. I go, Russ, you've done this a lot longer than me. Can you just get this guy to sign the bad boy carve out? And so, so he jumps on the phone and he talks to the guy for a few minutes. We're on a conference call. And the other guy's team is there, his lawyer and advisor. And it's me and Russ. And Russ is talking to him. And it's not really going anywhere. It's not going that good. And finally, Russ goes, I know the solution. I'm like, oh, thank God Russ is here. He's going to figure this out, right? Uh, and, and he goes, okay, uh, here's what you need to do uh, to, the, to the investor. You need to take the documents, the, the bad boy car and roll it up as if you're just going to mail it to us. Right. And the guy goes, what? He's yeah, just roll it up as if you're going to mail it to us right in a, in an air tube. And the guy goes, okay, I roll it up. And he goes like, like you can look through it. Like it's a tube. And the guy goes, yeah. And my partner, Russ says, great. Now what I want you to do is take that rolled up document and shove it up your butt. If you have any more questions or will answer them, click. <laughs> so $600,000 disappears from in front of my eyes. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, and by the way, when you're on a conference call and one person hangs up, everybody else is still on the line. Right? <laughs> so Russ hangs up. And, and, and uh, so I'm going, well, you know, a bad day. And he didn't mean it. And I go, listen, we're just not going to do, do the deal. You know, we can't be talked to like that. So I call Russ. I go, Russ, you're a rich guy, right? You, you have all the money in the world. This is, you know, this is so important to me. I work so hard. Now we're not going to be able to close the deal. And he says, oh, we're going to close it, but we're going to close it with my money. Right. You're not going to get, you know, anything near the fee that you thought you were going to get. I said, but why did you blow it up? You lost the deal for me. It's like so unfair. He goes, I didn't lose a deal for you. You lost that deal six weeks ago. That guy, you by acting needy. Everything that guy's asking you for, you're bringing him a discount, special paperwork, not wanting to sign 
the agreement. It, it's fetch me another rock, right? He's asking for a red rock. You're fetching him a red rock. He's asking for a, a red rock with purple polka dots on it. You're fetching him a red rock with purple polka dots on it. He said, that's a good one. Now I need a green rock with red stripes, and you're going to get that. He's never going to close because you're acting needy. You lost that deal weeks ago. All I did was bring it to its natural conclusion. Warren, never be needy. And from then on, I learned the damaging effect of neediness and deals. So, so what can you do? And I think to the point you made is uh, you have to establish yourself as a peer of the buyer, of the investor, or maybe even uh, of superior status. So, so neediness comes from status. Those are two, you know, if you're, if you're fairly new to this or you're in the deal-making world, just take out a piece of paper and write neediness on one side and status on the other. They are two sides of the same coin. If you have low status, it pushes you into the needy position. If you have high status, you can eradicate neediness. These are the things that let you control your position in a deal. If somebody thinks you need the deal. So by the way, if you're in Silicon Valley, I mean, deals work like this. You cannot go raise money when you um, are running out of money, right? So the way to fix, because what will happen is the investors will, uh, uh, you know, just not invest. And, and why would I put $3 million in your deal at a $15 million valuation if I can wait four weeks and pick it up out of bankruptcy, right? It makes no sense. If I can, if I can buy your entire deal for a million dollars, why would I invest three million dollars for twenty percent of it? It's just math, right? So you, so, so you can't go raise money from the needy position. The way you fix that is you go, hey, listen, you're probably, you know, within two minutes of pitching the deal, you're probably going to see our balance sheet and see we're pretty low on cash, right? Uh, we're, you know, we're raising capital right now, but irrespective of whether we raise money or we don't within the next thirty days, the deal is going to continue. I'm going to write, I'm going to continue to write checks myself. The team is going to subordinate their pay into equity, and we have operating runway for another year. That is how you eradicate the needy position in a real financial transaction. So, you know, what is it that pushes you into the low status position in a deal? You know, every, every deal is different, but I, I can tell you because I see two, three, four deals a day, it's, hey, Oren, really glad to meet you. We're so excited about, you know, about meeting you. We really hope that you'll invest in our company. Um, we're, we're uh, you know, very optimistic that you'll find that we're, um, you know, we're the, the right company if you invest in, we'll be the best company in your portfolio. You know, we're pretty flexible on valuation. Um, we, you know, we've talked to a bunch of people and it's been a no-go. And so you're, you know, one of the guys we're really excited and um, hopeful about getting in. And uh, if you need anything from us, just let us know. We can, we can show you more or less, or, and we're going to give you a presentation now, but interrupt us at any point if something's not clear. You know, so my reaction is, oh, so you're going to give a presentation to me that is potentially not clear. This is not a good start. So, so that's the needy position and it's really fixable by saying, um, you know, hey, look, uh, we're meeting with a few firms. We're looking for the, you know, th this is what I would hope somebody would tell us. We're meeting with a few firms. Uh, you know, you look potentially like someone we'd be interested in work working with. We we don't know enough. You know, we're raising three million dollars. We've got a million and a half circled. Um, we've got some pretty good partners identified for the balance of the million and a half. We're probably going to spend just the next three or four weeks closing that round. If it doesn't close for whatever reason, we're going to proceed uh, and write checks ourselves. And with the capital that we do have circled. You know, taking an investor is a big decision. And we, um, if you gave me the check right now, Oren, I, I'm, not, I'm sure, not sure I would know what to do with it. I'd hand it back to you. I don't know enough about you. But look, how about as an agenda, 
Uh, we'll tell you a little bit about our company for the next 12, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. Uh, and then in, in, um, in context of what we're doing, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, your firm, your ability to invest. And if our circles overlap enough and there's a reason to go forward, I'm sure we'll find a way to get to the next steps. If not, hail fellow, well met, uh, name in the Rolodex, and maybe we'll meet in the future. Why don't we get started with the presentation and see if it's a match? So that's the high status way that I want somebody to pitch me. And I know that they're professional. They know how to manage a meeting. They know how to manage time. They have a presentation prepared that I'm very likely to understand and like. They're not needy in any way. And uh, they're to the point where they're telling me, hey, if you gave us a check right now, we wouldn't even take it. That is the high status eradicate neediness way to pitch a deal whether it's in sales whether it's for capital um or or you know any situation so i i don't know you know just if that triggers any question for you and i i know that was a, a a tirade you know or a soliloquy with a witness whatever you want to call it but um just want to give you you know my thoughts on the whole subject i think my two favorite takeaways from that is is one status because there are things we can do in advance to elevate status you know, um, getting a celebrity in on the deal. Do like there, there. You can just actively look at the patterns of other people who have developed status ahead of time, right? Um, I love that about status is the opposite of neediness. It reminds me of that cliche, uh, you know, desperation is a stinky cologne, right? You know, yeah. you think about college. The hot girl never wanted you to be a puppy dog, right? The really cute girls are not interested in the puppy dog boy who follows them around like crazy. Now you can't be a jerk. But, but the puppy dog is boring and they're not interested and they don't date the puppy dog, right? Um, I think about uh, the other one there is I think so many people maybe more inexperienced in fundraising, they show up with, with bluster about how I don't need you and they, they make these like vague claims about how well things are going with other investors, but stuff that can be you know, can have a hole poked in it so quickly. And I feel like the other big takeaway from that, and I want you to tell me if, if you see it the same, but I feel like what you're doing is ahead of time, you're structuring it in advance so that you can actually say those words with meaning. Like you have talked to the team about, hey guys, I think we're going to get this. It's going to happen, but I need the backup plan of knowing you guys will take equity in lieu of paychecks if we don't get it. And like, if you actually have that set up in advance, you can look somebody in the face and they try to poke holes in it and you just stare them back in the face and go, no, I've already talked to them. That's what we're going to do. It, how would you say that different or do you see it different than that? Yeah, I think I think what you said is so interesting and a lot of people do m miss on this point. So let, let me help. When you are going in, especially when you're asking for money, but when you are pitching a contract or a deal that has, uh, um, you know, risk, every company is different. You know, for Microsoft, you know, a, a deal with some risk and teeth in it might be five, 10, 15, 20 million dollars. Um, you know, for other companies, it might be $50,000 or $75,000. But we're not talking about a $1,500 thing. So when you're going in and asking somebody to really risk capital by signing a contract with you or investing in you, the highly admired capability and skill set is to be able to go broad strategically vague as you may say right and talk about what is happening in the world that you're in and then being able to go deep 
into context and really talk about numbers and the uh, uh, details of it. And to be able to be broad and deep and switch between those modes is highly respected, highly desired. The other thing is uh, buyers buy and investors invest in the way they want to invest. So, and I'm, I'm going to marry these two concepts together. But if you go to enough private equity meetings, just as you know, as you've been to, uh, and you, you know, you're pitching for money, the, it may be an hour long meeting, but the guys are just sitting there patiently, right? And you're telling your whole story, blah, 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 our fund and our 2% and 80, 20, and we're looking for, you know, resources that haven't been identified by other funds and we negotiate hard and we have proprietary deal flow. And it looks like, you know, we could deploy $50 million every 12 months and with a dry powder and a capital overhang of, uh, you know, a three-year horizon with a fully liquidated fund and seven, you know, seven years. So, so whatever it is you're saying about your fund, the guys are just sitting there and they're waiting for seven or eight pieces of information, right? How much capital are you putting in? What are the fund ratios? How much traction is in the already invested companies? Um, what does your pipeline look like? What is your focus? Uh, um, you know, and, and just a couple things they need. And they're just staring at you somewhat blankly and blindly until you give them one of those data points and then they're writing it down, right? Because they only need a certain limited amount of information that's within your whole big story. If you could just give them the information they need in the order they need it, in the amount of detail that they wanted it, it wouldn't be an hour-long meeting. It would be an 18-minute meeting. They're just looking for very specific things. So if you know what order people uh, you know, need the information, investors need the information, right, uh, and in one amount of detail, then you, you, know, you would basically have the unlock code for that investor. And for example, Sequoia, they give you the unlock code. You go to their site and they go, download this PDF. We're giving you exactly the information that we want you to give us in the order we want you to give it to us in the amount of detail that we want it, right? And, and so because they do this so often, it's just too frustrating for them to have companies come and pitch nonsense. The way I think about it, by the way, is uh, you, know, you go to Sequoia for $3 million and you're telling them you know, metaphorically, oh, we have a fire engine. They go, great, we invest in fire engines. Right. And then they look in the box and all you have is a bunch of Lego pieces, red, white, blue, all, you know, and they look and they go, that's not a fire engine. Those are just a box full of Lego pieces. And you go, no, we put it together like this and that and this and this. It becomes a fire engine. You go, that's not what we buy. Right. We don't buy boxes of Lego pieces. And most people who go to pitch, certainly for venture capital, just show up with a box of jumbled Lego pieces. So they're in advance giving you the formula that they want to be pitched in. That's very telling, right? Uh, and, and so coming back around, so that's one. You have to know the unlock code for the guys that you're going to pitch, the order they need the information in. If you're getting questions during your 20-minute presentation, um, you know, hey, what about this? And what's your traction? And how much are you – putting in and who do you see the competition right you go if you're getting questions it means you've skipped something something they expected to hear was missing because they don't come up with random quote you know what's your ip strategy um you know how many people are in the company where are you located if you're hearing any of that stuff it's because they were expecting to hear it a minute or two ago and you didn't have it there so there is a formula because people say hey orange you know what um what do you do when people interrupt your presentations well I don't know. I've been interrupted in five or 10 years. Well, how's that possible? Well, first of all, I begin meetings with high status. Number two, I organize the agenda that everybody's expecting to see from a professional, uh, 
you know, presenter of a deal. And third, I give the investors or the buyers the information they're looking for at the moment that their mind is going, oh, I need this piece of information. So every, they're constantly satisfied and, and entertained by this presentation. They're not left with questions in their mind, right? Uh, and, and we can talk more about intrigue. You know, at the end, they, they have to be intrigued, but the obvious questions that need to be answered have to come. Now, circling back around, what you said is many times, even if you have the, you're addressing the right subject in the right order, just going back to your point, people don't go deep enough and it seems vague. For example, we're better than our competition. We have a lot of uh, investors interested in investing. Those are the right things to say and maybe you have the right time, but you're not going deep into that subject, right? And so, for example, uh, you know, if you, if you were going to talk about, um, you, you know, hey, we've got some committed, we're raising $3 million, back to the example we were talking about, we've got uh, $1.5 million committed, and what's the detail around that? And I would develop something that I call a flash roll, right? And that's, that's in my second book, Flip the Script, in which you read, but a flash roll gives somebody absolute clarity that you do this all the time, you know what you're talking about, it's really happening. Happening, and there you can go as deep on this subject as anybody can go, right? So you might say, hey, uh, if I was given a flash roll and having already a million and a half circled on a $3 million round, you know, I might say something like, you know, we opened the round loosely about 60 days ago. Of course, we went to our existing investors. We have 15 existing investors. Six of them uh, said, hey, we want to continue with the company and protect our position. Um, they, they, you know, joined in a consortium and came up with $250,000 each. Um, you know, which was a little bit above 1.2, 1.3 million dollars. Uh, you know, we went back to them and said, "Hey, why don't you guys collectively come up to 1.5 million?" They spoke among themselves, formed an LLC. You know, called uh, you know Intersection LLC Capital Partners, and they all put in. They meet met the 1.5 million dollar threshold. They funded it. In fact, it's in escrow at Bank of America, and we're expecting it to fund the account here in seven days. So that is not vague at all, right? And and so that is how you give a potential investor real clarity that when you say, hey, we circled half the round, you really have because it's the believable details around it actually happening. So uh, in, in every circumstance where you're pitching, again, it's important to be able to go broad on strategy, but it's absolutely critical that you can go deep on details for credibility, right? And entrepreneurs tend to lock themselves into this this world of what is going to happen in the future. But you have to be able to make what you say is going to happen in the future, the pro forma, the plan, the orders, the product delivery, the market is going to show up. You have to make your projections of the future feel very likely to happen or certain. And the vague language that you're talking about, Jess, uh, that people use, entrepreneurs and salespeople, um, does not give buyers a strong sense of certainty that the things you say that are going to happen in the future really will happen. And that is what all deals come down to. Uh, if, you know, if you offer a good product, if you've got a good value proposition, if you're positioned better than the competition, you have a good brand, you appear to be honest, you offer a fair deal, uh, the buyer needs what you offer, they have the money to pay for it, and the deal still doesn't happen, it boils down to certainty. How certain did they feel that the things that you say will happen in the future really will happen? And, and the details, your ability to get into the details, uh, not get stuck in the details, really helps people get certainty about your ability. So, so that's how I think all that comes together. I love it. Um, you know, I think it's a good place to end for, for part one of the episode. 
it, it's funny how much that principle applies elsewhere. You know, 10 years ago, I started a charity called Child Rescue that combats child sex trafficking. Yeah. And we have been able to recruit so many uh, Delta Force and FBI and CIA and Navy SEALs to it. And it's it's by knowing the acronyms, you know, by yeah. being able to, you know, it's like when you just ask them questions like, oh, which branch are you in? What was your MOS? You know, we're really looking for humanters. Have you take your ASOT level three? What, you know, how much, how much, how many of the ASOT type stuff have you done? And all of a sudden, like it, it it's a funny to me how many times I've been asked if I was in special ops when I have no military background at all. And it's because the guys on our team have taught me the acronyms to use and, and how people from that community speak. And all of a sudden, instead of like seeing me as some fanboy, they're like, well, it sounds like you guys must be really doing some stuff. Yeah. I'd be interested to talk to your guys. Right. It's I, so good. I, I just, you know, I can relate to that because I, I have a, a six-year-old, right. And um, we read books or listen to audio audibles like flight of the old dog, uh, which is the uh, refurbishment of a B-52 bomber, you know, that made a, uh, <laughs> a mission into Russia. And so all the language in those books, you know, are, uh, you know, clear one runway. Cause it's written by a guy who was in the, um, in the air force, you know, and was an aviator. So a lot of the languages, uh, nav, this is weapons. We are cleared on runway five, three for takeoff <laughs> three, seven left tower, uh, clear us for, uh, takeoff on southerly west. This is a tower. We are seven. You have wind at 10 south and you're cleared for takeoff. Please do not go weapons hot within the range. You are cleared 10 seven. Right. And so, uh, and, and so my little boy and I talk back and forth. And so we're on a plane <laughs> not long ago. And he's, he's literally going, Nav, this is weapons. I'm prepared to go weapons hot. Right. And I got, you know, so now I'm talking to a six year old. Right. And I go, weapons, you are cleared for weapons hot. And then he'll go, I am weapons hot, and we are above range at 60,000. The six-year-old, right? Yeah, yeah. Going sparrow one, away. Sparrow two, away. Sparrow three, <laughs> away. And then I'll reply, you know, then, I, then I'll reply, weapons, this is nav. We are tracking sparrow one is splashdown. Sparrow two is splashdown. Sparrow, uh, 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 sparrow three is miss, miss, miss. You are good kill on one, good kill on two. So the guy, the guy sitting next to us, he's like, "Are you in the military?" Goes, no, I'm not in the military. And and so like your experience, he goes, "You sound like you're in the military." Goes, I, no, I'm not in the military. I just like talk to my six year old, you know, because we have fun with this. And uh, he goes, "No." And so he's arguing with me, like you're in, same thing. Like you can, you know, obviously you're in special ops. You can't tell me you're in the military, uh, but you're obviously in the military. And and because we know the details from reading these books so well, so we can't unconvince this guy that me and a six-year-old are in the military. And I but, think- but I feel like this is exactly like your last YouTube video where you're talking about knowing the level where people are and bringing them the right deal for the league they're in. You know, like yeah. this idea of knowing your client space so well, speaking in their language. I, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I've recommended your stuff to so many CEOs, even... Um, I don't know if you caught the last episode of our show, but it's it's a woman who's got a third-party marketing firm for 40 Act Funds. She's raised like yeah. $8 billion so far, right? And I was recommending your stuff to her, even at her level. And I think it's the, the context and the specifics that you bring that has sold your million copies of your book. Um, besides your YouTube videos or going to pitchanything.com, you know, obviously everybody should be on Amazon buying the book. What are, the, what are the next steps if people are like, man, this guy has the answers to what I need. How should people be reaching out to you? What are your courses, books, programs, Instagram? Like what, 
what's the best steps for people? Yeah, listen, if you want, I mean, we have a pretty big team here and we are able to help, as you said, I mean, I'll get emails from guys who say, hey, we just raised $1.3 billion. Thanks for the advice. Everything worked perfectly, right? Or we'll get emails from a guy that says, look, I was the worst salesperson at the company. I don't even know why I took a sales job, but I read Pitch Anything. Now I'm the best salesperson at the company uh, and I'm you know, joining XYZ and coming to your event. So that's the range. If you have something that's live today and you need some real help, just email us directly, orin at pitchanything.com and say, I need help, right? And we'll jump in and, and try and help you. But I definitely would start at pitchanything.com. Put your name in and we'll get you the stuff you need to be successful. And, I, you, know, I, you, you know, you said you read the new book, Flip the Script. I just tell you a little thing that happened to me. By the way, do you, do you know Garrett White at uh, Wake Up Warrior? No. Oh, do you know that brand? Yeah, really good, really good brand. Uh, so, you know, not to, not to plug other things, but, you know, he helps guys who have businesses. So it's only for men who have businesses, have a family, and have a wife. That's all he focuses on because that's a triangle of impossibility to manage all of that, right? So you focus on your kid, you forget about your wife, focus on your wife and your kid, your business suffers, you focus only on your business, your family goes to hell. Like it's very, very difficult to manage all those three things simultaneously. And he's a very good system. So anyway, um, he's, a, uh, he's a good friend of mine now, but he started with Pitch Anything. He's got a large company. He's helped thousands and thousands of men through this process. And, it, and the reason I mentioned to you, it looks a little bit like, uh, you know, spec ops training, you know, because he only does it with men, so he can he can put them through a pretty rigorous process, uh, you know, break down and build up. So so I gave him, I drove up, he's near Newport Beach, and I gave him a pre-publication copy of Flip the Script. And because he was such a big fan of Pitch Anything, and we have such a good relation, I didn't hear anything from him, right? I thought I was just going to read it that night. Email me the next day. This is great. I don't hear anything from a week. And like, this is the one person, I don't care what a lot of people think. I'm not, you know, eradicating neediness. I fairly pitch anything, sold a million copies. But this is my new book. This is somebody who really respects the original book. I don't hear anything from for two weeks. I don't hear anything from him for three weeks. Right? And I know he read it. And so I, I was, I go, wow, you know, I was really hoping Flip the Script was going to just just be that thing that that changed people on top of pitch anything. And I don't hear from him from a month. Finally, on day 31, I just written it off. I'm like, whatever. I don't care what Garrett thinks. And he writes me. He's like, Orrin, this is better than pitch anything. I've just been dealing with this for 30 days. I want to write you until I was fully absorbed in it. And, uh, and so that really filled my heart with joy, knowing that somebody as sophisticated and uh, as advanced and as trained up on pitch anything as you know these guys are coming around saying this book is even better better and the tools are better but they're different books well Pitch and i, and I want to talk about it yeah. I, I really want to dive into it let's do this i think let's start let's end part one here everybody tune back into part two we're going to dive into flip the script um thanks everybody for tuning in